Everybody, if you got your Bible, go ahead and find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Luke, chapter 15. Tonight, uh, we're going to consider two different parables in that chapter. Initially, I was just going to cover them and consider them uh, one at a time. This one parable this week and, and, and uh, the other a different week before the semester was over. But Jesus told them success, successively to make the same exact point in both parables. So I thought, well, let's just cover them both at the same time. I'll figure out what to teach on another week. But we find those two parables in chapter 15. We've already been in this chapter one, one week uh, when we studied the parable of the prodigal son, which is the entire second half of the chapter. We did that several weeks ago. So tonight we're going to consider the two parables that are just before that, uh, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And, um, and while we're sort of on the subject, we're going to look at these two parables together, but Jesus actually told, just as just a sort of a reminder, Jesus actually told all three of these parables, lost sheep, uh, lost coin, and the prodigal son, told them, all three together, and all three of these share like the same basic message. And you might remember when, uh, when we studied the parable of the prodigal son, I said it might be better named uh, the parable of the lost sons, the lost sons, because both sons were uh, lost in that, uh, because uh, A, it would fit that parable, B, you can more easily see how all three of these parables go together. So you would have the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. Um, but here we are, and we've already studied the third of the trilogy of parables. Tonight we're going to consider the first two. And we've seen enough of these parables now to know that Jesus, and I've said it enough, to know that Jesus told each of these parables uh, to teach us about his kingdom, uh, what, what life in his kingdom is like, what, how, how, all, all different angles. What life? How to how to enter his kingdom? What is life in the kingdom? What what's the end of the kingdom going to look like? And lord over the kingdom, the worth of the kingdom. I mean, it's all about the kingdom, and and uh, and and you, we've had we've seen so many parables. Literally, began with this formulaic introduction: the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Um, and we've seen that enough to, to know and be confident that even when, it, when you come across parables that don't begin with that kind of formulaic, literal uh, introduction, kingdom of heaven is like this, we still know that Jesus is, is in these parables doing just that, describing for us and teaching us about life and reality in his kingdom. And I think he's certainly doing that here. But perhaps uh, it doesn't begin with that um, formulaic introduction because you're familiar with these passages, the imagery doesn't really lend itself to kingdom kind of language um, because the imagery is sheep with a shepherd and a lady with a lost coin. So it doesn't really fit kingdom imagery. But so if I, if I were, were going to stay, uh, say the emphasis of these two parables um, that they give us, if, if strictly it would be something like, be describing for us the shepherd of the kingdom, but that's kind of mixing metaphors. Kingdoms don't have necessarily shepherds over them, uh, so I, I'll match. I'll match the metaphors and and just say that the emphasis it's giving us 
tonight in these two uh, is an emphasis on the Lord of the kingdom, the Lord of the kingdom. Uh, and and, and um, yeah, so let's read the passage, read the two parables, and I'm going to try to set some context that is provided for them here, and then we'll dive into them. So Luke 15, the first two parables, verses 1 through 10. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Uh, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And that's obviously tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Uh, based on how the passage begins. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and, and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Lord, uh, what we just read is, is uh, from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is His holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, so our, it is our delight to be able to study these parables. These are some of the most important stories that have ever been told in any language in the history of the world. They tell about eternal things. So help us, Lord, not to take them lightly. Lord, give us eyes to see what the Lord Jesus is teaching us here, minds to understand clearly what He's saying. Would you please give us uh, hearts to embrace the truth that He's conveying to us. Give us wills to obey uh, whatever He's calling us to, admonishing us toward. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through the Word. Give me the help that I need to teach. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me just say a little bit of, about the context of these two parables, and then I'll lay out what I want to see in them. Notice that the context is given to us again in verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man received sinners and eats with them. Now, if you're a regular reader of the Gospels, you aren't surprised at what the, those two verses tell us. Uh, you know, Pharisees and scribes grumbling and all that sort of stuff. But let's think about them for just a bit because I think they give us a fuller picture of why Jesus told the parables that we just read. I think if you could read, if you could read those two parables apart from those two verses, you might think there's, you might be able to clearly see what Jesus is trying to say, but with those first two verses, I think you see another layer to it. First of all, it says tax collectors and sinners 
were drawing near to him. Now, we've spoken about this before. Tax collectors in particular, they were probably the most despised segment of Jewish society at that time because of their connection to the Roman Empire who ruled over them. And, 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 and not just because of their connection to Rome, but their, their dishonesty, their, their absolute dishonesty and, and, and greed and, and the hatred of tax collectors in that day was all the more when it came to like a tax collector, for example, like Levi. Because with a name like Levi, he's a Jew himself. He was a Jewish man himself, but he was a tax collector. So you're talking about not just a tax collector. Somebody like that was like a tax collector who had turned on his own people and were, was working with the Romans. And, 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 and so, uh, he, yeah, but tax collectors um, here are, are lumped into, into with, with sinners. And sinners may just be a reference to Gentiles, who, of course, were sinners like everybody else. But tax collectors in the Gospels are here linked with sinners. In other places, tax collectors are linked with prostitutes. I mean, they were just lowest of the low. Nobody liked them. Um, everybody would have tried to avoid a tax collector like the plague because anytime you got, anytime you got, became near to one, especially if they're sitting in their tax booth, um, you were afraid that they would, hey, 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 you, you know, you owe, and you don't, you would never know what they were going to say you owed, and you, you know that whatever they said was not really what you owed. You wouldn't be sure, do you really owe any of it? But you had no recourse. You know that even if you did owe some taxes, they're going to tell you more than what you actually owe because they want to line their own pockets with it. I mean, this is, this is and, that, and that, that there's nothing you could do about it. And, it might, and for a normal person, it might mean the difference between bread or no bread at home. These were the ones who were drawing near to Jesus, right? Why? Well, maybe he's the only one who would draw near to them. And no doubt he did, especially when the scribes and the Pharisees here note in verse 2 that they don't just draw near to him, but he receives them. He eats with them. And they grumble about that. But it's not as if Jesus did, did this with tax collectors and sinners, but he didn't do it with them. I mean, if you look, look back at the, the chapter before this, in chapter 14, and you'll find Jesus in the very first verses of chapter 14. Jesus, where is he eating? He's eating in the home of one of the Pharisees. But uh, you know there was always an edge there. In that chapter, in chapter 14, Jesus, in the home of that Pharisee, was testing them by healing a man in their very presence on the Sabbath. And they, would, uh, they, they started harboring bitterness against Jesus. And that bitterness spills over into chapter 15. They don't note that, the, note, note that in our passage, they don't fault the tax collectors uh, and, and the sinners uh, for coming to him. They fault Jesus for receiving them, eating with them, teaching them. And it's in response to their grumbling that Jesus tells these parables. And it's interesting because the first parable that he tells is a parable about a shepherd and his sheep. And I certainly do not think that that's coincidental. Um, considering who Jesus is talking to, Pharisees, scribes, Pharisees who knew their Bible, scribes who copied the Bible, they knew their Bible. And I don't have any doubt when he started telling this first parable that Ezekiel chapter 34 was in the background, and they knew it. Um, if you don't mind, if you want to, you could hold your place here and find the Old Testament book of 
Ezekiel chapter 34. And I'll try to show you quickly what I, what I mean. We won't stay here long. You know, most famously, in uh, Psalm 23 declares that the Lord God is the great shepherd over the people. But God had also commanded, even in the Old Testament, priests and scribes and teachers of the law to be sh- under shepherds, under his, under his great sh- being the great shepherd. They would be his under shepherds to shepherd the, the people of, of God, uh, to care for them spiritually. That, that by the way, that image... That, that image of shepherd, that is still the image behind the word pastor, right? Um, sometimes the word translated pastor in the New Testament is also translated shepherd. Um, but here in the Old Testament, the Jewish leaders were to shepherd the people of God. And in, and, and in, in, in Ezekiel 34, it's an unflinching chapter. God is excoriating the leader's um, and by the way, I did tell you, Ezekiel, I didn't say Exodus, didn't I? Oh, I'm so glad. God is, is excoriating the, the uh, leaders for not shepherding the people. If you look at the end of verse 2, for example, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And then most seriously, he says in verse 4, and you can see the link with our parable tonight, He tells them, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. You can see how that is in the background of a parable of a lost sheep, right? Where you go and bring back uh, a lost sheep. But that's not all of what we find in Ezekiel 34. So he's excoriating and, and, and just, man, like getting on to the, shep- the shepherds of Israel for failing to do their jobs. But if you look down at what he says he's going to do as a result, down in verses 22 and 23, God says because they have failed as the shepherds of Israel, here's what he's going to do. He says in verse 22 and 23, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd. Who's that? My servant David. More on that in a minute. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. God himself is promising to come and be the shepherd of his people that they were not being. And it's a prophecy of Christ to come. Because clearly David was already dead and gone when Ezekiel was writing. Another, another, a greater, a better David is coming, Jesus. And Jesus clearly says in John chapter 10 that he is that good shepherd. Peter would call him the great shepherd of the sheep. And I think in these parables, you can go back to Luke 15, in these parables, Jesus is telling these scribes and Pharisees the same thing but in story form. So what we're going to have here in these two parables, and really three if you think, the parable of the prodigal son as well. It's a twofold purpose that he's telling these. One, he's telling it as an indictment against the Pharisees, as an indictment against the scribes. He's basically saying, you are still failing as a shepherd of the people of Israel, still doing what the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 did. And Ezekiel 34:10, God said, I am against you. I am, behold, I am against the shepherds. Jesus is saying, that's you. 
That's you. But these parables don't just indict the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they are extolling the good shepherd. They're extolling the Lord Jesus Christ who came to fulfill that promise in Ezekiel 34. So if you think back to what we read, here's what I'd like us to consider about these two parables. If you're taking notes, here's what we're going to see. First, we're going to consider this truth. The Lord knows His own. The Lord knows His own. And we see that truth in both parables, by the way. We're going to see that truth. The Lord knows His own. We're going to see that in the first part of verse 4 in the first parable and the first part of verse 8 in the second parable. Second, we're going to see this truth displayed. The Lord cares for His own. The Lord cares for His own. We're going to see this played out for us in both parables. The second half of verse 4 through verse 5 in the first parable and and the second half of verse 8 in the second parable. So he knows his own. He cares for his own. The third truth is this. The Lord rejoices over his own. And we're going to see that in each parable as well. Verses 6 and 7 in the first parable. Verses 9 and 10 in the second. So let's take a closer look at these parables and think first about the truth that the Lord knows his own. So right after the introduction, verse 3 simply says, so he told them this parable, and which really means these parables that, that flow out of that. And he begins, with the, he begins in the first part of verse 4 saying this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them? And I'm going to stop right there. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them? Dot, dot, dot. Now look down at verse 8, at the beginning of verse 8, where he similarly says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, dot, dot, dot. And so right at the outset of these, before he even gets to what is, what is done for the lost sheep, what is done for the lost coin, there is this immediate recognition, one is gone. One is gone. Like, One is missing. I have a hundred sheep. One's not here. I have ten coins. I'm missing one of them. There's this immediate recognition of that. And, and, And to know that, what does that require? It requires knowing each sheep. It requires knowing every one. It requires knowing every coin. Every one of them. And there are a couple of things that make this a deeply encouraging truth, maybe more so than meets the eye initially. One of the things that we learn by, is we learn it by not losing sight of the context that I just explained to you, of, the, of who he's talking to and who, who's meeting with Jesus. The context of these parables is of tax collectors and sinners drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And it says that Jesus received them, Jesus ate with them, but it, it, does it, it doesn't yet clearly tell us that these tax collectors and sinners repented and believed. Now, perhaps they were on their way to repenting and believing. They were drawing near to Jesus. Jesus was receiving them. Jesus was eating them. Clearly, they wanted to hear what he said. Jesus was happy to tell them. So maybe they were well on their way to, to, to repenting uh, and believing. And this parable would lead us to believe that that, that 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 would be the case. But to this point, all we're told is they heard Jesus. 
and ate with him. Based on the immediate context, they're the ones that seem to be in view when he's talking about lost sheep. Like, they seem to be these tax collectors and sinners as opposed to the the Pharisees and the scribes who may be the 99, and more on that in a minute, which one, which one seems to be lost? He's, he's, he's saying, these, these tax collectors and these sinners that I've received, that I'm eating with, they are the, they're like the lost sheep. They're like the lost coin. And if that's true, it falls in line with other things that Jesus has said. You've got to think about the sequence of things. For example... Jesus says in John 10, 16, after he says, I'm the good shepherd, this is what Jesus says in John 10, 16. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. I must bring them. They will believe. Hasn't happened yet, but they will. They're sheep. And he calls them sheep. I have sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them. They will hear my voice. They will listen. They will believe. In some sense, they're sheep. In another sense, they have not yet believed. Jesus, in Jesus' prayer in John 17, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus prayed in John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he didn't just pray for his disciples. He prayed for all those who would believe, who would believe through their witness. Again, Jesus referred to them as sheep in John 10. They hadn't even believed yet. And in another interesting example, if you're taking notes, you can, you can jot this down and, 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 and fact check me on this. It's there. When Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 18, he goes to Corinth and he preaches in Corinth. A few, a, a small handful come to faith, but he is persecuted in Corinth and they're about to shake the dust off their feet and go to the next place. But just before they got this paltry few who have believed, just before they say, okay, on to the next place, we're out of here, God comes to him in a vision. And in, in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, this is what God tells him in the vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one's going to attack you to harm you. Here's the reason. For I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city who are my people. What? I have many people in this city who are my people. But if you, if you read what just before that, only a small handful believe. There wasn't many of them yet. So who are this many that he's talking about who were my people? Some people that God already considered my people. They weren't yet, it's people who had yet to believe. But if Paul would continue preaching, they would come to faith in Christ. And, 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 and they would be his people if they repented and believed if Paul would stay and continue teaching, which is exactly what he did. He stayed another year and a half. point is this. The Lord knows his own, which meant the Lord knew you 
before you ever repented and believed. The Lord has set His love on you and sovereignly and mercifully orchestrated the events of your life, whatever those were, so that in due time, you heard the gospel and He made you alive in Christ Jesus by His Spirit and you repented and believed and found salvation in His name. These parables teach us that the Lord knows His own before His own even know Him. Which is the most unshakable, by the way, foundation of our assurance. That's, that's, the, rock, that's the bedrock of our Christian assurance. That it's why we believe that He will never leave us nor forsake us because He is the one that started it in eternity past. He's going to preserve me to the end so that I persevere to the end because He set His love on me before I even knew who He was, before I was ever born. But that's the other encouraging truth about this parable. Not just the Lord knew you in eternity past before you ever knew Him, but that He knows you now. He knows you now. He knows, he knows when you're near. He knows when you're straying. And in the first, in the first parable... Out of a hundred sheep, a hundred sheep, he knows when just one has gone astray. And this is not just a bare knowledge, like I know the sky is blue. It's not just information. When it says, when it says the Lord knows his own, that's a covenantal knowing. It's like Psalm 1, that, that Psalm 1 is a good one to memorize. At the end of Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows the way of the righteous. It doesn't say He knows the way of the wicked. It just says the way of the wicked will perish. Does that mean He's unaware of the way of the wicked? No. No, no, no. He, it, it, it just says that with, the, with, the, with His people, He knows them. He knows them in such a way that moves Him to care. Which brings us to the next point, which is just that. These parables teach us not only that the Lord knows His own, but also that the Lord cares for His own. You know what happens next in, in each story. When the shepherd sees just one sheep go astray, or just one coin is lost, the lady with the one coin, action begins immediately. And look at the second half of verse 4, verse 5 in the first parable. Again, the, 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 at the description, when one sheep is lost, it says, does he not... Leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So just stop right there for a second. I think when he says, does he not leave the 99, like I just said, I think he's, he's sort of, again, passing swipe at the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, right? Oh, you're not the lost ones. Oh, yeah, you, I'll play your game. You're the 99? Okay, right? Well, then I'm still right to leave you guys because you're okay and talk to these guys over here. I think that's what he's saying, especially when he says, again, tongue-in-cheek at the end of verse 7, oh, these righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is just playing along with that. Why do you have a problem with me going after tax collectors and sinners if, if you don't need me, right? But then the other half of that verse also is comforting. It says, does he not... Go after the one who is lost. That's comforting. Until he finds it. 
That's even more comforting. Same thing in the next parable. woman loses a coin, and she will seek it diligently, it says in verse 8, until she finds it. The truth that this is teaching us is a truth that the Puritans taught so well. That says when we, when we fall and, and when, we are, when we are united to Christ by repentance of sin and faith, when we're united to Him, right? When, when, when we fall into sin or, or, or stray, it is not union with Christ that we have lost, but communion with Christ that we may have lost, Right? We don't lose our union. We can lose communion, but never our union. Right? And that's, I think that's demonstrated here in the fact that even before the sheep decided to return, I mean, a sheep never would and a coin can't, even before we move toward him, he's moving toward us. And, and, and like being lost, right? We... We, we don't, if I'm lost and I don't know where I am or, or, or anything, I don't even know that somebody's seeking me until they find me. Oh, there you are, right? Um, and, and often, God's seeking after us feels the same way because sometimes even while the Lord is seeking us, it still feels like we're in a wilderness of lost and, uh, and sin and stumbling. Like we, because often the Lord wisely and kindly often lets us go our own way. He lets us go our own way. He lets us experience the consequences of our own actions. That doesn't mean because He's hands off. No, He's very active in your pursuit when He's doing that, even when He's doing that. Don't, don't mistake, don't mistake what feels like God's absence as God's absence. It's going to feel like you've lost communion. He hasn't gone anywhere. You have. Right? It's not as if He isn't seeking you. Why, why would God seek us like that? Why would, why would He, in seeking me, let me continue in my wayward path for a while? Why would He ever do that? Here's what, here's what um, the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says about this you won't be able to write all this down so just listen it's updated language so it's not old it says the perfectly wise righteous and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts why he does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of, and the corruption and deceitfulness of their own hearts so that we might be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him to sustain us, to make us more cautious about future circumstances of sin and for other just and holy purposes so that whatever happens to any of His elect happens by His appointment for His glory and for their good. But there's one more aspect about this from the first parable that I want to mention briefly. Verse 5 says, He lays it on His shoulders. When He finds the sheep, He lays it on His shoulders, rejoicing. He lays it on His shoulders, rejoicing. When we don't 
know the way out of the mess we often create for ourselves, the Lord knows when to carry us out by his mercy and for our good. Communion might, with him might be lost for a time, but union never is. He knows those who are his. He cares for those who are his, even when we stray. And if that makes you flippant about straying, I don't think you fully understood the gift of his mercy. He's a good shepherd. But look at the last word of verse 5. Rejoicing. He carries on it. He lays it on his shoulders. Rejoicing. That's, that's our last point. Very quickly, the Lord rejoices over his own. We see that there in that verse. We see it again in both parables. When in both parables, friends and neighbors are called in to rejoice over them finding what was lost. And twice we're told of the joy in heaven when what was lost was found. If that teaches you anything about God, you know, like we always say on Sunday mornings a lot of times, if you have time around the tables, what does it teach you about God? Does it teach you about yourself? What does it admonish you to do? If you read those parables, what does that teach you about God? What does it teach you that God goes to great lengths to, in places precisely like this to teach us about himself? It, it teaches you that he's not, he's not a, a, a cold, harsh judge. That he's not a faraway king, right? Not a faraway sovereign. He's a, he's a shepherd who loves and rejoices when we repent and walk in his way. And all of heaven rejoices with him. I want to end with a, a passage from Gentle and Lowly. Uh, if you've read this book, maybe you remember this. If you've never read this book, maybe this will make you want to read it. As well, you should. He... Uh, he has this, this um, reflection on, it's from John Bunyan. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe some of you heard of that book. You should read that book. It's kind of like the most best-selling book in the world outside the Bible or something like that. Anyway, um, Bunyan is reflecting on when Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. And this is what he says. Um, yeah, he, yeah I, in, he, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Bunyan writes, they that are coming to Jesus Christ are oftentimes heartily afraid that Jesus Christ will not receive them. This observation is implied in the text. I gather it from the largeness and the openness of the promise. I will in no wise cast out. For had there not been a proneness in us to fear casting out, Christ needed not to have laid way, waylaid our fear as he does in this great and strange expression in no wise. There needed not, as I may say, such a promise, there needed not, as I may say, such a promise be invented by the wisdom of heaven and worded at such a rate as it were, as it were perp on purpose to dash in pieces at one blow all the objections of coming sinners if they were not prone to admit of such objections to the discouraging of their own souls. For this word, in no wise, 
cuts the throat of all objections. And it was dropped by the Lord Jesus for that very end and to help the faith that is mixed with unbelief. And it is, as it were, the sum of all promises. Neither can any objection be made upon the, unworthy, upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that this promise will not assoil. But I am a great sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them. Basically, the, this whole bit, it's a, it's a good way to end both of these parables. So encouraging. It just reminds you, this man, this shepherd, he carries his sheep on his shoulders. Got to be heavy. Rejoicing, though. Rejoicing. Calling friends. Rejoice with me. Rejoicing in heaven. I just think it's a good reminder to you, when you have doubts, the Lord does not just tolerate His own. He rejoices over them. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this, this brief but good word. Lord, I thank You that, um, that You will in no wise cast us out. That when we go astray of our own accord even, You, you seek us out. You... you you search us out, and even when, um, even when you let us go our own way for a time, you're doing that for our own good. I'm reminded of that, of that promise in Jeremiah 32, 40, where you promise, I will never stop doing good to them. So even when it doesn't feel like you're doing good to us, you're doing good to us. Even when it feels like we are far away from you because of our own stupid and sinful rebellion, you've not given up on us. You're not merely tolerating us. You're rejoicing over us. You're seeking us out. And you're doing good to us. I pray that the knowledge of this mercy would cause us to humble ourselves and walk steadfastly in obedience. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.